And another Saturday morning has rolled around. Hey, everybody, welcome to Inside the Outdoors for this Saturday. Uh, a kind of a break from the uh, the winter storm that nailed us this, uh, this last week. And that's going to be one of the topics of discussion today about what that's doing to wildlife. But nice to have you aboard. Listen, we got a big weekend. Uh, the boat show opened on Thursday. That's always kind of the first sign of spring and gets us to thinking about soft water at least. And we've got plenty of hard water to talk about. So we'll talk about that with uh, with Gary and with George. Uh, we'll also talk about uh, about the boat show itself and talk to one of the exhibitors that's uh, going to be there this morning. But we want to start with uh, what's going on in the mountains this time of year, and especially since we had the big storm earlier in the week that dropped another couple of feet of snow, really impacting our wildlife. And um, and it has that effect every year. I mean, they're getting, I guess, as much as you can get used to having the snow and being forced out of their winter range and having to be up in the hills. But it does have an effect on deer. And, of course, we have a lot of them that try and get back to their typical winter range, which means they're in our backyards for those of us who uh, have decided to build on the east side of the valley as well. So to talk more about that and uh, about well-intentioned people who may be actually hurting the resource, we've got Kobe Jones, who is the big game coordinator for the State Division of Wildlife Resources. Uh, Kobe, nice to have you aboard this Saturday morning. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, good morning, Steve. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Um, Let's talk about this. Boy, I I can imagine that this past week certainly has put pressure, more pressure than we already had, especially on our deer herds, because we're over, what, 140, 160 percent in some parts of the state as far as snow is concerned. We haven't had a lot in the valley, but boy, we've sure had a lot in the mountains. And that means that there are a lot of these animals that are stressed and that are having to deal with things that normally are going to be tough enough on them. But boy, right now it's even more so yeah there it these winter storms are always always hard on on wildlife and so you have to keep that in mind when you're out and about and recreating and doing what you're doing to make sure that you try to give the animals a wide berth and as much space as you can uh don't bump them don't push them um and and just kind of you know every every day in winter is a it's they're they're losing a little bit of fat and so the more they have to move, the harder it is on them. Yeah, it, it's. Um, I mean, it's a stressful time on their bodies anyway. And then when you have this additional snow, and I think a lot of people, you know, they see them come into their backyards. We talked about it before. They graze on, they browse on their shrubbery and everything else. Um, and that's tough for the homeowners. They get tired of it. But by the same token, those deer have to find something to eat and uh, many well-intentioned people decide they want to try and feed them and maybe this happens more in rural areas uh, as well but uh, you really can't feed deer can you You can feed some animals some of the big game animals but deer is not one of those things that uh, the general public is able to to help much i think it's one of those things steve where you really have to weigh the pros and the cons and and you know let's make it very clear there are times when as an agency we will choose to supplementally feed wildlife. Um, and when we do that, we do it in a way to have the least impact, least negative impact, the most positive impact we can. But every time you choose to feed deer, um, you, you have negative implications. You know, and one of those examples is that our, we have some areas around the state that are, chronic, that are, that are positive for chronic wasting disease. 
And the division is that we've made a conscious choice that we will not feed in those areas. Even, even when those populations are struggling, or if they're struggling, we can do more damage than good by feeding. And there are a lot of other negative consequences to feeding as well. You know, when, when you feed, oftentimes when you feed, you, you know that the winter has been hard enough that you're going to probably lose the majority of your farms. They're just not going to make it through. And so when you feed, the goal is to feed to sustain adults, to make sure you have those adults to reproduce that next year and, and recruit those years' fawns in, into a population. So just supplementally feeding, and, and especially not feeding the right things, you can inadvertently kill fawns or, or harm the fawns. Um, and, and the bucks, if there's not enough feed there, they may, they may even push the does off. So you'll congregate animals, increase disease, and you could have negative impacts on, on smaller deer and fawns. Chronic wasting is, I know, one of those issues that we heard a lot about it maybe 15 years ago, and then it kind of went out of the uh, the public uh, eye, perhaps. I know from a biological standpoint, you guys have to continue to be vigilant with it. But from the public standpoint, a lot of people maybe not even uh, realize what it is or have heard about it. Talk to me a little bit about chronic wasting disease, what it is, and how big a problem it still is in the state with, with especially our deer herds. Okay. Yeah, so chronic wasting disease, first of all, there's a lot we don't know about chronic wasting disease. Um, it's not like a typical bacteria or viral disease. Um, it, it, it's a protein disease. And so in mammals, mammals have uh, what they call prions. They're a certain type of protein in the brain, and they're highly concentrated in the brain tissue. And those, those prions, they form and fold in a certain conformation. All proteins form and fold in a certain conformation. And chronic wasting disease in deer is when, for some reason or another, which we don't understand, that conformation changes. And when one of those proteins changes, it tells its neighbors that their conformation is wrong, um, and they change. And it ends up um, creating you know, holes in the brain, and, and eventually it, it's always fatal. It leads to death um, for, for mule deer. There's a similar disease in humans, uh, Crutchfield-Jacobs, uh, and and these <clears throat> these diseases. There, it's a malspongiform encephalopathy, and there's a lot we don't know about them. But what we do know is that they could be spread by congregating deer through saliva, through feces, um, and it's one of the really negative impacts of feeding. And one one of the things that we've had, I guess, an example of this was you had a rare deer over in the Moab area that was known as, I guess it was coal. It was the black deer, uh, which is a, a real rarity, but just passed away. The buck that I guess everybody in the Moab area was aware of, and it died, and you were able to do the uh, the autopsy, and it was chronic wasting that caused the death of this rare, really rare deer. Yeah, super, super sad. Uh, a melanistic deer. Um and and yeah, so it it was positive for chronic wasting disease. And I should mention in the state we have three three main areas that are positive for chronic wasting disease. This isn't spread throughout the state. It's concentrated um, on uh, the Manti and, and Nebo area. It's concentrated in the northeastern portion of the state, uh, around uh, on the south slope, in and around the Vernal area. And then it's concentrated down on, on the LaSalle Mountains as well. And those are the places down, down and around Moab where, where coal was. And, 
and where he uh, contracted chronic wasting disease and, and and suffered the fate of the disease. So I guess the, I mean I guess the word is well-intentioned as you may be, do not feed uh, wildlife in the winter months. I mean, especially the big game and, and deer in particular, because you may be doing more harm than good. Like you said, if the very worst, if you're congregating the animals, you're you're creating some problems there from a sociological standpoint. You've got bucks maybe forcing fawns and, and does out of an area uh, where they're already struggling. Uh, that's a best-case scenario. Worst-case scenario is if you've got disease and you congregate, just like you congregate human beings, the chances of spreading that disease are magnified significantly. Yeah, they, it definitely increases through feed. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the message. Um, you know, and, and, and oftentimes it's feeding things that, that are inappropriate for the, the, the gut of the animal as mm-hmm. well and, and can cause problems there too. So a lot of complications with feeding. When... when when the division does choose to feed deer in an area, there's a lot we weigh before we do it. And I guess the other the other thought is, if you do feel that uh, you've got animals that are starving in a certain area, to call the division, and then you guys can make a sound biological decision as to what to do, if anything, about it. Otherwise, you may have just have to have nature take its course, which sometimes is the most humane thing. Yeah, yeah, sometimes. And it's hard to watch because as humans... You know, we really care about the individual, the individual animal, and and, and we should. Um, and as biologists, sometimes you got to take a step back and say, well, what's best for this population and this herd? And and absolutely, if there are concerns, feel free to call one of the regional offices, and, and we can discuss, you know, uh, the, the body fat indices that we took this fall and, and what the herd health looks like with, with anybody that would like to do that. Well, Kobe, we appreciate it. I know it's a it's a tough job, and we've talked about it before. We have impacted as a as a species. The human being has impacted, you know, the big game all over our ecosystem. But certainly, it's never more prevalent and more more apparent than during the winter months when we get heavy duty snow and we have animals that struggle. And we hate to see it, but sometimes trying to fix it ourselves is worse than just allowing nature to take its course. So, again, it's got to be a biologically sound approach to trying to solve the problem and uh, let's leave it to the professionals but uh, well intentioned as we may be we might actually be doing more damage than good and we appreciate your visit this morning yeah absolutely uh, thanks for the time you bet it's our pleasure thanks Kobe. Yep. Bye. Kobe Jones, who is the big game coordinator for the State Division of Wildlife Resources. Now, uh, let me just tell you, this time of year as well, it kind of goes hand in glove with this. Uh, this is the time of year when a lot of folks, because beginning February 1, the shed hunting season has started. Uh, the shed antlers, you know, and for those of you who don't know that uh, big game animals, you know, deer and moose and elk typically will drop their antlers um, at this time of year through the winter months and uh, of course they, they they grow new ones but a lot of folks like to go out and gather the shed antlers and all kinds of things that are done with them uh, a lot of people wind up using them for uh, um, you know making making chandeliers out of them or or carvings or whatever uh, you've got to take a course online an ethics course before you can shed hunt now that is if you go between the first of february and the 15th of april those are the uh, the dates that you have to have this shed hunting permit that you are uh, required to take the ethics course first. 
if you want to go. Now, if you go beyond April 15th, you don't need it. But, uh, dear, uh, this time of year, as we found out from Kobe Jones, I mean, they struggle a lot. So they're in a weakened state already. Uh, if you spook the animal and it has to run, then it's using up uh, some fat reserves and energy that it might need just to make it through the winter. So uh, one of the things that they'll teach you in this course is how to go about hunting sheds without disturbing the animals and uh, and what to do if you encounter animals while you're out shed hunting. Um, you can get shed ha- antlers without stressing the animals or if you know what you're doing and the course will help you do that. So you can complete the course. It's mandatory if you want to gather sheds from February 1st through the 15th of April. If you go after it, you don't need the course. Now, um, you can gather areas, uh, you can gather sheds almost every area in the state of Utah after you complete the course, uh, except for wildlife management areas. Now, many of those are closed in the winter and spring to protect the animals, so you've got to double-check and make sure that a WMA is open for the gathering of sheds. And then, of course, private property, you've got to have permission, written permission, from the landowner. The other thing they want to tell you is if you find a skull out there when you're hunting, with the antlers or horns still attached, it's quite possible that it was poached, and in which case they do not want you to to uh, pick it up or move the skull or any other of the evidence at the scene. They want you to take the photos um, to to, uh, locate it. Uh, GPS coordinates, the best way to do that, and then report it to your nearest DWR office and and provide any details that you can. But again, uh, if you've got kids, by the way, you do not need to have them complete the course. If you've got young children um, and you've completed the course, then your kids do not need to take it if they're going to a company you to look for antlers. Your certificate covers them. But again, if you're looking for sheds, if you're out there, make sure that you've taken the course. Shed hunting does open or has opened as of the 1st of February and goes uh, with the necessary requisite permit until the 15th of April. After that, you do not need them. There are some wonderful sheds out there. I mean, just some amazing animals uh, that have dropped antlers. And it is kind of a fun family tradition for a lot of folks to to get out there and a great excuse to be in the mountains. So again, think about it, uh, but make sure you take that course. It's a free course and you can get it online at the Division of Wildlife Resources. Listen, we're going to step aside. We'll be back in just a moment. We'll talk to uh, George Summer and to Gary Winterton. Uh, we got more ahead. We'll be talking about the boat show. Of course, uh, started on Thursday and is going on right now and we'll have all of that straight ahead. So stick around as our Saturday morning version of Inside the Outdoors continues right after this. And we are back, everybody. Second segment inside the outdoors on this Saturday morning. The Saturday after the major winter snowstorm that has made it tough for anybody thinking about going out ice fishing. Great for snowmobilers. Watch out for the avalanche situation. But for ice fishermen, well, it's going to be tougher to get out on the water. Let's talk to George Summer and welcome him in. We're going to talk a little bit about what's going on with the hard water. But, George, folks who are heading out, it's not going to be like it was a couple of weeks ago where the wind had pretty well taken off most of the snow on the ice and you had you had some issues with footing because of the uh, clear ice but at least you didn't have to wade through knee deep or deeper snow 
Exactly. You know, and, and the, the challenge now is that we've gone from that little little snow on the ice or, or no snow on the ice to now we've got a ton of snow on the ice. And, and you know, it's, it's going to present some challenges getting out to go fishing. And that's where a, a, one of those uh, fold-up or collapsible snow shovels yeah. is handy. Um, you know, you're probably going to end up walking out there, but you've got to have something to clear off that section of where you're going to drill your hole. And uh, you can't do it without a shovel. That's right. Yeah, I, I, I was going to say, you know, when you when you walk out, that's only half the battle because once you get there, you've got to clear enough space that you can put up an ice tent or you can put a bucket down or whatever and just drilling. I mean, if you start to drill and, and you've got 18, 20 inches of snow, which is very possible on the ice, and you start drilling there, as that day goes on, you're going to be knee-deep in slush as well if you don't clear that around before you, you put your base up for whatever it is, whether it's a tent or a bucket or whatever so yeah the, the shovel is is probably right now one of the best investments you're ever going to make exactly you know and it's it, you know there's there's it's no fun drilling a hole through snow mm-hmm. to get through to the ice because you've got all that water and then all that stuff just keeps going back in your hole so you're constantly cleaning it so if you shovel out an area around your hole where you're going to drill it then you don't have to clean the stuff out of the hole as often and stays you know open uh, a lot longer um, which makes the fishing a lot more fun um, so you're you're doing more fishing instead of cleaning. Um, <laughs> Well, that's one of the tough things about ice fishing is, you know, gearing up and going and everything else. I mean, it is a major thing. It's not like just hooking the boat up to the to the back of the, uh, you know, the back of the vehicle if you're if you're fishing a lake. Uh, it can be worth it, obviously, but it takes a while to get all that gear put together and loaded, and then you've got to drag it out on the ice. And all this does is makes it a lot more difficult when the snow is the way it is right now. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we're going to have some, uh, with uh, today's temperatures, we're going to have some of it melting at the lower elevations. Mm-hmm. So you may have some slush, but I don't think you're going to see that as strawberry. Uh, it's <laughs> going to be deep, and, and you'll probably need a, a snowmobile or something like that to get out to where you need to be. Yeah, and that's one of those things, uh, again, if you don't have them, you can go to a place like Strawberry where you can contact the marina, get a hold of the Phillips folks at uh, Strawberry Bay Marina, and let them know. They will take you out on a snow if you don't want to rent your own snowmobile, they'll take you out. They'll rent you the ice tent. They'll rent you the uh, snowmobile equipment. Uh, they'll rent you the fishing gear, and they'll set it up for you. I mean, they'll take care of everything if you're just someone who wants to participate but don't feel like you've got the knowledge or the skill to do it by yourself. You can learn uh, if you go to an area like that. So that's one of the things that, you know, a lot of folks show up. They may have an auger and a bucket, but if you show up to Strawberry with a hand auger in a bucket this time of year, chances are you've just wasted a tank full of gas because you're probably not going to get a whole heck of a lot of success. Exactly. You know, and that's a, that's a good service that those guys provide um, because then you can just go out and you're still going to want that shovel. Yeah, that's true. Clear that area. But, you know, you can, they can take you out, set you up, and you can be fishing uh, without a lot of effort and without having to own a snowmobile or anything like that. So that makes it a lot handier to go out have a good time there there is some good fishing to be had though now again the snow can change things a little bit but you know the the water conditions 
are such right now that uh, fish there's there's oxygen you've got to find that area where the fish are seeking the level a fish finder is absolutely in my mind is absolutely a must when you're ice fishing unless you want to just poach on the near nearby guy you know if you want to sidle up to to somebody and try and make friends and maybe if you've got the right uh, number of hot dogs next to him you can you can make a buddy real quick but if not i would suggest that you have your own fish finder and uh, and locate your own area because some people do not take too kindly <laughs> to having close neighbors when they're ice fishing yeah, you know, and ice fishing is a is a social sport. Uh, it's a lot of fun to do that. But you know, if you come unprepared and you're you're bumming, you know, a fish finder, or you know, you're going over and helping yourself with the, somebody else, it's not going to be as social yeah. as you want it to be. Take your own fish finder, take your own stuff, go over and visit. Hey, you know, I'm not catching any fish. I see you guys catching fish. What's going on? And Ice fishermen are really good about, hey, you know, I'm catching them at this depth. I'm using this. Um, but have your own stuff uh, by all means. And it makes it a lot more fun. And a fish finder is definitely um, handy. I, I wouldn't go ice fishing without a fish finder. And, and if you don't want to spend the money for a fish finder, then spend the money for a single burner stove and a, a fry pan. Because, uh, you know, putting, putting some hot dogs or some bacon or whatever and, and sidling up to somebody can get you a long way as well. And it's cheaper to buy the single burner stove and the fry pan and the bacon sometimes in the fish finder. And that kind of hospitality will go a long way towards ingratiating you to your neighbor as well. So, you know, I'll give you a couple of options there. Exactly. You know, and it's a, it's a good way to, to make friends is to have food. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they'll come to you and tell you, hey, you know, here's what's happening and here's what depth they're at. And, hey, you want to come over and check out the fish finder or yeah. see what we're doing? Um, it, it's a, it, it's a, again, it's a social sport. That's a lot of fun. What are you hearing? Uh, I, and, again, I recognize that some of this is going to change with what we had, the couple of feet of snow in places on the state this, this middle of the week or earlier in the week. It was it was obviously a tough way to get around the Wasatch Front on Tuesday, but, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that folks have to, I guess it was Monday when we had the big the big storm. It seems like forever in the rearview mirror, but we certainly had the, uh, the storm come in overnight, and, um, you know, plowing out of the driveway was a lot of fun for a couple of days, and I'm sure that things have, have changed significantly at altitude because you can't add more than two feet of snow and just not have some change in, in the condition. Exactly. Well, the first of all, you could have a place to put that snow, yeah. so you can actually get to the body of water. Um, and then it is going to. I think, it'll, you know, with the snow cover, it's going to put pull some of the pressure off some of the uh, closer places. And so, if you can get out and get on the ice, you're probably going to do really well. And, and I've heard that you know, Pine View. Um, if you move around Pine View, spin, you're going to catch different species in different places. But it's been decent. Um, Echo and Rockport have been. And you're either on them or you're not on them. East Canyon's been really good for trout. Yeah, and I know Pine View, if you're fishing by the dam in about 30 feet of water, the, the chances to pick up some panfish there are quite good. So that's one that, you know, gets forgotten a little bit. And, and it isn't easy to get to because you've got those steep banks right by the dam. But if you can find a way down and, and do it safely, you can often find some good fish at Pine View. That's kind of one of the sleepers we haven't talked about a lot this year. But uh, it can also be really good. So, hey, George, thanks. We appreciate the visit, as always. And we'll look forward to checking in with you next Saturday again. 
Sounds good. Thanks, Steve. All right. It's George Summer with his uh, weekly fishing report. Oh, yes. We know what that means. Besides uh, the fact that it's just the sound of some boy, I was quick though. You don't get a whole lot of music this morning. You get one one bar of music, and that's all. It's Gary Winterton, Mr. Hooked in Utah. We're going to talk ice fishing at one of the places George just mentioned, Rockport. Yeah, you've got a good show we tonight. We can't have too much summer music. It's been freezing cold, yeah. winter storm. So we're just going to cut that early so we don't set any false expectations. <laughs> so we're looking at Rockport tonight. Yeah, we've got a great show for you. Really fun. You know, one of the things that, that I've been kind of grappling with over the last few weeks is, okay, where to go, what to film, you know, I want to hit some different ice spots. And we went and decided, okay, we're going to go fish Rockport. But instead of just kind of going out general, we actually went out and targeted the perch, which, um, you know, can be really hit or miss on a lot of these lakes that do have good quality perch. And we've got an abundance of lakes that have them. But you know what, Steve? Um, I went with Sue Oaks. Her name is, she likes to be called D. She's actually got a guide's license on a few of the lakes here, state parks here in Utah. And she's quite knowledgeable. So we hit Rockport. And I'll tell you what, she put on a clinic. I'll t- I learned so much from her in how she rigged, how deep we fished, her jigging technique. I mean, she was plucking fat perch um, out of 50 feet of water just effortlessly and it, it was awesome that's great because you know obviously the perch is one of the best table fares we have so if you can find a, a lake and we know that they are in Rockport they've got some nice perch in there but sometimes finding them is tough you get a lot of the little ones without the big ones so if you've got the technique for producing the big ones tonight that should be great I'm looking forward to learning that yeah, I think it'll be very instructional. People will like it. One of the things that Dee did is we went straight over to the west side and we found 50 feet of water, which I thought was a bit deep at first. And even on the graph, you're just seeing the bottom. And as soon as we went, dropped down to the bottom, and let me tell you what she did. She rigged a double dropper, so two small pink, kind of the, the ratso. It's a little teeny ratso jig tipped with a butterworm. And then she put a split shot, a quarter uh, ounce split shot, about a foot above the the top ratso. That took it to the bottom really fast, which was interesting. She didn't have to waste any time. Boom, she was down to 50 feet. Once she hit the bottom, she let that big jet, that big sinker kind of bounce on the bottom and stir up a little something, then raised it up to where on her graph we could see the quarter inch. We could see the two ratsos in the bottom and was just off the bo- off the very bottom, the bottom ratso. And wham, all of a sudden you could see the perch arrive and they were coming over to check it out. And she was just picking off. The bite was so light, but she was picking off nice little fat perch um, one after another. And I would never have done that. So, again, it's a great technique learning from someone who really knows what she's doing. And, and that's, to me, the key. I mean, we talk about it all the time. But on the show, the real key is, yeah, it's great to watch other people catch fish. That's all kinds of wonderful. But it'd be nice to know how to do it yourself. And I think that's one of the things that you guys do on the show with uh, Wyatt shooting it and, you know, you producing it and hosting it is showing people how they can replicate it. That's the key is someone who can see it and say, you know what, I can go out and I can do that now because I've got the additional information. 
Yeah. And, and, you know, Steve, sometimes I get a little bit bugged by the pictures I see on Facebook where people, they hold a really nice fish, they blur out the background, yeah. nobody can <laughs> see where they are. And, and rather than saying, hey, I, we fished at strawberry, we all can tell, okay, that's a big cutthroat, that's strawberry. But instead of saying, hey, this is where I, I fished, you don't really have to hotspot it, but you can say this was a technique that I was using that really worked, and this will work on any of these different bodies of water. And people forget they learned from somebody else. And then all of a sudden, they want to keep it a secret. We have so many awesome places to fish, so many large bodies of water that, you know, you're not hot spotting anything. You're teaching the next generation um, how to do it. Because if we don't, we'll lose it. We'll lose those opportunities. So I hope we do a good job of teaching people how to do this. But tonight, you'll see this. And again, Steve, I would have made the mistake of starting in 15 to 25 feet of water. And I think I would have really struggled bam she went right over to 50 went right down and i asked her why 50 she basically said you know what this time of year those perch like to be deep they like to get down in a little bit of the warmer waters the lakes turned over and there's some grass down there so it provides them with with comfort safety kind of some cover and then when you jig just above that grass up they come well we're looking forward to it tonight it's uh, hooked on utah 11:05, right after talking sports on KUTV channel 2 and i'm with you about teaching other people i i think the more you catch fish the better fisherman you are the more you're willing to share so for those folks who like to keep it a secret and want to show the fish and get all the glory but don't want to share any information um insecurity is a tough thing it's it's a tough thing and you know once you become a good fisherman folks you'll be willing to share with other people so enjoy your time your your 15 minutes of fame on facebook but for those who really know what they're doing they're more than happy to share it and so i'm looking forward to seeing the show tonight gary um with uh, with you and d and again 1105 it's on kutv channel 2 right after talking sports we're going to learn a little bit about how to catch some perch some nice perch at uh, at rockport so Until then, buddy, we'll talk to you again next week and uh, catch you on the flip side, okay? Peace out. See you tonight. All right. It's Gary Winterton, Mr. Hooked on Utah. We'll step aside, take a break, come back with our final segment. It is a spring tradition in Utah, and we'll be talking about it next. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Inside the outdoors on this Saturday morning. Final segment of the show, and we're going to talk about the boat show that has been going on for about as long as anybody can remember. And the boat show has always, to me, been kind of the signal that spring is not too far around the corner. We hope, anyway, based on the weather that we're seeing and the and the snow and everything else, maybe we're... Uh, um, maybe maybe we're a little bit optimistic. Either way, when you get to the boat show and it started on Thursday, um, you, uh, you've got to have that positive outlook and be thinking sun and soft water and everything else. And to tell us more about that, one of the exhibitors who've been there forever. Um, you know, I remember my days working at Channel 4. I would always stop into Marine Products uh, there on 17th South to try and figure out what the heck was going on and, and to get excited about, uh, about the things coming up in the boating industry. Well, Marine Products still there, one of the major exhibitors at the boat show, as they have been uh, forever. And Jeremy Thornell, who is the sales manager at Marine Products, joins us this morning on the phone. Jeremy, how you doing? 
Good. How are you doing? Good. It's great to have you aboard. And um, let's talk about the boat show. The boating industry, you know, fortunately, we've been blessed with all this snow, which means that we have water. We're going to have water to boat on this summer, and that's going to be a great opportunity for us because we've gone through some of those years when we haven't had uh, the kind of water we've needed. This looks like one of those years that we're not going to have that problem. Yeah, exactly. It looks like one of those nice years. So we're, <laughs> the, the lake should be full. Now if we can just get the, the weather to turn and start yeah. getting sunny a little bit earlier than some of the past years. That's true. And that's, you know, so we can get out there and start heading south and use those local reservoirs, and hopefully that water gets a little warmer this year. What's new? I mean, the boating industry has gone through a huge evolution. I know uh, during the time I, that I was talking about from the, uh, gee, from the 80s, uh, the late 70s, early 80s, you know, you guys at Marine Products were one of the first people to bring in bass boats. My Ranger boat came through through you guys as well, and uh, and you know we had we had boats that had live wells and everything else, and that was a huge innovation, obviously, in the late 70s, early 80s, especially for the state of Utah. We started getting in then we we went from bass boats to just general fishing boats that had live wells and multi species boats and everything else, and now almost everybody who fishes has some kind of a boat that is geared for fishing. So that was one of the evolutions. And then we saw an evolution on the other side with skiing. And, and uh, you know, after we went from water skiing, we went to wakeboarding and everything else with towers, uh, you know, b- boats with ballast tanks. So you created a wake that you could you count on every time, no matter what the water conditions. Where's the boating industry? What's the next evolution? Where are we headed? Well, you know, that's the thing is the wakeboard market, like you said, has been taking over everything. It's all about surfing because it's very easy to do. So, you know, as you get older and you'd like to still water ski or wakeboard, but your knees and your back are just telling you, <laughs> Tell hey, me about this it. isn't an option. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so wake surfing, the nice thing about it is at any age, any point, it's so low impact. You're going, you know, less than 12 miles per hour. So if you take a fall, it's not a big deal. You hit the water, it pretty much feels like, you know, big marshmallows at that point. So the wake surfing industry is the big push. You know, all these manufacturers are trying to make it that the weight can set up super easy. It doesn't take long to do. Some of the brands, you know, we're super in Moomba and super focused on still making the best crossover boat. So some of them have got so specific to surf they sort of forgot about the wakeboard, the you know the ski family, the rough water ride, and that's where Super's like, hey, you know what? You're going to wake surf, but you're still going to have all the other activities. You're going to get down to Lake Powell, and you're going to have rough water situations. So let's make a boat that can handle that, and you feel comfortable. So when you used to come around, and you remember how shallow ski boats were, mm-hmm. and you were like, holy cow, if I got in some rough water, that could be a little scary. Now the profile is so deep on these boats that you're like, is that like an inboard outboard <laughs> <laughs> they're, you know, they're deep, and, and they're still making them turn really well and perform. So wake surfing's really big. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but the wake foiling is starting to really kick in. So it's a surfboard, but then they have a hydrofoil. It's been popular in the ocean, so they do it behind kiteboarding. Laird Hamilton, which is one of the best surfers in the world, has been doing it the north shore of Hawaii, and they tow in with a jet ski, and then this foil just floats. So now they're doing that behind boats, and it's very low impact, but it gives you another alternative to being behind a boat. I love it. Like, the more I ride it, I enjoy it because it's very low impact, even more so than surfing. But it gives you a little bit of a 
difficulty that makes it enjoyable. That's the thing with surfing. Unless you're starting to get into the big tricks, basic surfing is pretty easy. Once you start trying to do tricks, that's when it becomes <laughs> complicated. But the higher foils are really starting to take off. And like there's a one brand called E-Foil. They're out of Puerto Rico. And they're actually making a battery-powered one. It's expensive, but the cool thing is um, the battery will run over an hour long. And you can just be like at Lake Powell, jump on it, and start cruising. And it's really fun. I, I had the opportunity to get down to Lake Powell in September and rode it. And every day it was like, oh, i got to get better. i got to try this again. And so every day I'd at least get on it for 30 minutes. And it was a lot of fun. So, um, the only hold back to that is it's expensive. Is this the next? I mean, we've had the air chair back in the day, you know, where you had, the, yeah. you had that, you sat in it, you strapped in it, and then it kind of had the, the weight and the uh, and the foil underneath it and if if you were good and I never tried it but it looked like a lot of fun but if you were good you could get up and and actually be riding on the little foil that's all it would yeah. be in the water and you'd be you know two feet three feet above sitting on the air chair is this similar innovation uh, in terms of the feel like more floating than it is that, that yeah. okay because because yeah. I know that that was a real popular thing for people who were able to do it but it was difficult yeah, and that's where the foiling of uh, with a surfboard, it's way easier. So Mike Murphy was the inventor of the air chair and sky ski, the sit-down foil. Mm -hmm. And then he has helped all these manufacturers come out with them for surfing. And he has been a big key in developing them for now the surfboards. And what's funny is he's older now, but he would rather stand up foil than sky ski because it's easier on its body. Yeah, um, <laughs> that becomes he, important. Yeah, he has a bad lower back, and he says, you know, the air chair, when he goes really big, because, you know, you, you saw those guys back in the day. They'd go yeah. huge. They'd get up there 15, 16 feet in the air and then land. That's a lot of impact on your vertebrae. And so this surfboard is much more manageable. You're not jumping it like, you know, where you saw the air chair before mm -hmm. doing tricks. It's more like a surfboard. No bindings. Strap, strapless, you're just cruising and just floating, and it's just it's soulful. It, it's very peaceful too. You just hear the water glide. It's really fun. Let's talk about the boat show in general. Uh, obviously, it's a it's one of those times when you can introduce new models, new technology, and everything else. What will people see in the marine products area from this boat show? So yeah, so Super and Lumba, and we also have a Lumacraft fishing boat. So you were talking about fishing boats, so we have all the boats to make everybody happy on the fishing side with the live wells and whatnot. And then we have Super and Lumba. You know, Super has the official tow boat of the Wakeboard Pro Tour and Surf Pro Tour, so we'll have all those. We'll have some other products. There's a, a new surf rope that's a little safer. Um, when you get up surfing, you can just let go of it, and it will recoil back to the boat back engine area. Um, and that's from Lake Wake Life. You're also going to have liquid lumen. So you know all the decorative lighting underneath the bottom of the boat. You'd see it as accents back in the day, but now, you know, some people want them brighter to allow that water to glow. So liquid lumens is going to be here. They have really nice bright lights that don't heat up like the old traditional lighting do. So you're going to see that. Um, 
and then all the different Wake Forest brands. And what I was happy about, and this doesn't have anything to do with marine products, but for a few years, the, the boat show, the houseboats haven't been present. And I saw there is actually a houseboat hmm, here right. this year. Yeah, and, that is you know, huge. A lot of people want to line up and see the houseboats. I like to see the houseboats myself. So I was really excited to see that we have a houseboat manufacturer. I don't want to say that the wrong name. I think I saw Somerset on it, but I'm not certain. I do know Bravada Boats is out there. Adonia, I believe, has a booth here. They do, for a fact, actually. I saw it. Um, so you're going to, you know, all the houseboats. I saw some of the big yachts that people love to go see. We also have the wake slider. You know, the thing that's great about the Green Bands and the Utah Boat Show is it's like one of the only boat shows in the country to see live action in the middle of winter in a building. So they do those two poles with the cable system, and so we have these pro wakeboarders um, hitting the rails, and it's super entertaining. People love it. So they're hitting a couple, you know, the big slider, the piping, uh, covert piping, and it's really entertaining. And so you're going to have that going multiple times today and then through tomorrow because, you know, the boat show's running through tomorrow. And then the nice thing, too, is they've also, uh, you know, the parking lot gets super full here. So they have, a, you know, uh, have arranged parking over behind the Crown Burger to the west of the building and then also to the north where the movie theaters are. And they have a shuttle running from the one over by um, the Crown Burger. So you don't have to walk if you don't want. There's a shuttle that will be running back and forth, too. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it is down to a science now in so many things, all the way from the parking to when you get inside and, and a chance to see everything. You, you know, you mentioned the live action with the wakeboard. Is that, to me, a still phenomenal to watch them do those tricks? Um, I mean, it's a combination of uh, snowboard, snow park, uh, you know, and, and, and skateboard, ski park, and everything else only on water. It's just an amazing thing that people can do that. So, you know, if you're looking for a place just to be entertained, as well as to see all the products and everything else, this is the great opportunity in the boat show. So, Jeremy, we appreciate it. We urge people to go down and see you at Marine Products, see all the new stuff. I'm amazed. I'm amazed at the price tags, too, but I'm amazed yeah. at, the, at the product that is out there and just the things, the evolutionary nature of the, uh, of the marine industry. Yeah, it's it's good. And the other thing I like, too, is how family-friendly the boat show is. You know, so from little kids, if you want to make it a date night tonight with the wife, you know, it can be really cool. So Yeah, yeah. There's, there's something, no matter what your age or your interest level is. And, I mean, everything from, you know, the port of boats, if you just want something you can throw on top of your, of your vehicle and then pop out and it becomes something you can fish on or take the kids in the canoe or whatever, all the way up to the share in the houseboat or the motor yachts themselves and those things I mean are absolutely incredible the the, the old days of the Botel houseboats with yeah. um, you know with uh, just a, a floating platform basically on two pontoons those are long gone I know. It's like you're, think, you're comparing Compton and Bel Air a little bit, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's definitely a difference between the first few times I ever went to Lake Powell back in the 70s. I mean, you go oh. now and you're talking you're talking major, uh, like floating condominiums to be down there and hot tubs. And if you can think about it or dream it, it's on a houseboat that you can rent. 
Yeah, like the nice refrigerators today and AC. Oh, yeah. The old days where it was a cracked <laughs> vinyl flooring and it looked like the cabinets they'd taken out of Grandpa's, you know, cabin or something. <laughs> Absolutely. And, uh, and you know, you wound up just with those two little outboard motors on the back. And if you got into rough water on the lake, which you often did, especially if you happened to get behind one of the tour boats, uh, you could be in real trouble with the water coming over those pontoons and over the bow of those boats. Now you've got a major floating hotel that you can enjoy, yeah. whether you own a part of it, a, a, a share in a houseboat, or just decide to rent. Uh, either way, you've got the great opportunity to see the lake the way you really want to see it and to be able to come back and enjoy air conditioning and a nice shower. That's that's a wonderful yeah. way to see it. For sure. Well, Jeremy, thanks. We sure appreciate it. Uh, again, we'll we'll be looking for you the rest of this weekend. Hope you have a great boat show. And uh, anybody who wants to head on down there, of course, the show will open this morning. It will go today and then tomorrow as well. Uh, and you've already got a good start on it with a couple of days under your belt. So thanks again for joining us oh, this yeah. morning. Hey, thank you for having us on the air. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, you too. Thank all right, you. All right, Jeremy Thornell with uh, Marine Products, and again, they, yeah, they have been around forever. I mean, I I've been dealing with Marine Products since probably um, seventy seven, seventy eight, uh, and they were they they were not a new company at that point in time, but they have grown so much. So if you want to check out the boat show, be sure and get down to the uh, I, I still call it Southtown Expo Center. I don't, I'm not sure what it's called now. Mountain America Expo Center, I believe, is the name of it now, just on State Street, a little south of ninety four hundred. South, but it is—it's um, one of those places that I don't care whether you're just kicking tires or thumping the hull or just sitting behind the wheel and imagining yourself in the boat uh, this summer. It's a great place to be and one of those uh, fun activities to have. So, listen, that's going to do it for us. Appreciate uh, all of you joining me this morning. It looks like it's going to be a decent day. Going to get some sunshine. Great opportunity. Get out and enjoy the boat show. Get out and enjoy a shed. If you want to go outdoors with your family, I want to thank all our guests today. I want to thank Jeremy. I want to thank Kobe Jones. I want to thank George. I want to thank Gary. And most importantly, I want to thank you for joining us. And we'll be along again next Saturday morning between 8 and 9, right here on 97.5 The Zone. So until then, everybody, have a great week. Enjoy the outdoors. And as always, you have been warned. Make it dry.